If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. Well, after weeks of confusion and mixed messages and controversy, the government is apparently hitting the pause button on its Bill C-10, which is ostensibly about modernizing the Broadcasting Act, but really has become about how and to what extent the government can regulate the Internet and even regulate content uploaded by individual Internet users. Story today a uh, committee of MPs tasked with studying Bill C-10 has decided to ask for a new statement from the Department of Justice on whether it violates freedom of expression rights for social media users. So just the fact that we're at that point is, I think, indicative of how just off the rails this has gone. Initially, there was an exemption in this bill said that individual users' content would not be considered broadcasting. Then that exemption was removed. Then the government promised to put it back. Uh, then they came up with a very different wording that left the door open to exactly that. Then we had on the weekend the minister talking about, well, only for people who have big followings. Then we were told the minister misspoke. It's all pretty exhausting to try to keep up with, which then brings us to today. Well, someone who's been following all of this very closely is uh, Dr. Michael Geist, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law and also Professor of Law at the University of Ottawa or at his website, michaelgeist.ca. Dr. Geist, welcome back to the program. Thanks for joining well, us here. Well, thanks for having me. I'm one of those people who is exhausted right now. Well, I can imagine. I mean, my goodness, it's just it's something new every single day. So let's start with where we're at today. It sounds like the government's taking a step back here. What do you make of this? Yeah, a pretty minor one, but frankly, one that they probably should have uh, should have taken a week or two ago. Uh, and so, we've we've had already now before the committee for some time the suggestion that one of the things that was needed in light of its decision to remove some of the safeguards for user generated content in the bill was an updated charter statement. The government does a review of all legislation to ensure that it's consistent with the charter. And so the argument was there was a need to revisit that in light of some of the changes. For some reason, the government delayed and delayed on that. They they, they weren't comfortable with it. Uh, but I think in light of all the public backlash that we've seen, as well as the pretty stunning interview that the minister gave over the weekend, sort of the second straight week where he's given a, a bit of a stunner in terms of his interviews, uh, the government's now said, yes, fine, we'll do the We've, they've agreed to an updated charter statement. They've agreed to having both that minister as well as the justice minister, David Lametti, appear before committee to talk about it. And they've agreed to have a series of experts appear before the committee as well. I know that some of the mem- member of parliament were, were referencing me as a potential witness. And so it's possible that I'll have a chance to appear alongside some others uh, in the next week or two. 
Yeah, and I mean, you know, aside from the minister's poor communication on this, I mean, there, there's some legitimate concerns about, you know, the wording of this bill, what was done to remove this exemption, the proposed new exemption. But, I mean, the minister's got to be the, the face of this. And I don't know if he doesn't understand the, the bill or doesn't understand the issue or is making it up as he goes along. I mean, how, how do you explain these really bizarre and confusing interviews he's given? Yeah, I agree. It's pretty hard to uh, explain, to be honest. I mean, I think he's clearly not a very strong communicator for one thing. It doesn't feel like he fully understands his own bill, though, I have to say. I mean, when you when you look at the, the interview he gave a couple of weeks ago to, I think it was the CBC, where he was unable to explain why there was a user-generated content exception that was then taken out, and then most now most recently over the weekend, uh, raised the possibility of regulating um, even YouTube users, depending on how large their audience or followers happen to be. Uh, I think, you know, obviously led to a lot of head-scratching. I will yeah. say, though, that there are certainly some cultural groups that have lobbied for exactly that. So I don't know that he's making it up as, as he goes along. In fact, in some respects, what he was parroting was some of the kinds of claims that we have seen from some of the cultural lobby groups who have argued that, you know, if you if you have a big audience, if you're a podcaster with a big audience, then you ought to be regulated in the same way that you might regulate radio. So it's not, it, it, it sounds crazy, I think, to some people, but in fact, it's a position that we've seen taken from a number of groups. Was well, interesting. So the term discoverability came up last week. And so this was sort of in between and the government saying, you know, we're going to make it clear that we're not talking about user-generated content. And, and then they included this, which certainly seems to involve the regulation of user-generated content. What, what do we mean when we talk about discoverability in this context? Yeah, that's a great point, and, I, and I, I'd agree with you. I think it does involve regulation of content once you get into discoverability. So, so the argument is that the Canadians may have a hard time finding Canadian content on their favorite service or platform, and so that the CRTC, the regulator, ought to step in and require that Canadian content be made available. And in a sense, handing it over to the CRTC to play a role in what our feeds look like on services like TikTok and uh, YouTube or Instagram. Now, that may make some amount of sense um, if you're talking about a service like a Netflix, where they're curating content and they've obviously got a lot of data, and so they could try to promote some of their Canadian content. Although even there, I would argue that it's in their their incentives are all about providing access and displaying content that people want to see. If they've mm-hmm. demonstrated that they want to see Canadian content, that's what they'll show. But bringing that into the user-generated content space, into the video sharing space or the podcast space, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. There's quite literally no one that is doing it this way. I mean, we'd be a complete outlier for something that I think is both unnecessary and unworkable. Well, in the context of of everything that's on YouTube and and TikTok, I mean, you know, you can at least argue that a a song is a song. So if a song's on the radio or a song's on Spotify, it was either written by a Canadian songwriter, performed by a Canadian artist, or produced by a Canadian, you know, the whole old old formula. But, you know, you think about just the the random uploads of, uh, you know, skateboard tricks or pranks or weddings or kids' soccer games. I mean, how do you even begin to apply a lens of Canadian content to, to all of this stuff? Yeah, no, I'm not sure that you that you can or that you should. I mean, I, I think, you know, I think the culture sector, the lobby groups, they have a vision of their own content being prioritized. But once you open this up to all user-generated content, it's not just that content. It does, in theory, become all of this content. And 
you're right. I mean, these sites, these services do not categorize content in that way. Uh, you know, I think about what would be required to try to make that happen. And, you know, would we be requiring YouTube or other services to now collect more information about their users so that they com could comply with those rules? You know, we're concerned already about them collecting too much information, and suddenly they could find themselves being effectively ordered by the CRTC to require even more information disclosure just so that they can meet these discoverability-type requirements. Right, and so in, in, in that sense, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily censor anybody, but the idea that, that preference would be given to, to certain content, I mean, th this still is a free speech issue, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I think if you're prioritizing or deprioritizing yeah. certain content, I mean, that, to my, to my mind, goes directly to uh, freedom of expression. And let's bear in mind that for so many, this is this is how they express themselves. You know, when you're on a TikTok or an Instagram, I mean, for many, this is their form of speech in the way that, you know, for me, it might be a blog post or an email, and for early generation, it might, might have been letters or faxes. Uh, and we would never think of having the CRTC regulate our blog posts, for example. But uh, this is precisely what what essentially the door is being opened to if if we move ahead with these sorts of discoverability mandates and requirements in this context. So where does this all go from here? I guess we'll get a, a better sense of whether there's some constitutional issues here and maybe this will steer things in the right direction. But I, I don't think the government's backed down entirely, have they? No, they definitely have not. It would be a mistake to think that they have. I, you know, listen, I'm, I think there's every reason to expect the government is going to come, come back with a charter statement that uh, says, oh, yeah, everything's still fine. Uh, you know, listen, it's not unheard of for governments to introduce legislation that gets challenged. Uh, on charter grounds and then find that uh, despite the claims that they made while the legislation was being developed it still is uh, overturned once upon upon review by the courts you know I, my view would have been that that they're frankly best off hitting the reset button altogether here that this is such a flawed process and such a flawed piece of legislation that um, you're better off saying let's let's get this right and we don't make changes to our broadcasting laws very frequently uh, sometimes can take decades, and so we're far better off making sure that we get it right at this point in time. And if there is an urgency about ensuring the creators get some get additional support, this bill isn't going to do it because it's going to be locked up in the courts and in regulatory hearings for years. And so the government could say, listen, we'll hit the reset button and we will make a commitment, especially based on some of the new tax revenues from some of the big tech companies. We'll use some of those revenues to help support the sector. All right, we'll see where it all goes from here. In the meantime, much more analysis, michaelgeist.ca. Professor Geist, always appreciate it. Thanks for joining us again here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Michael Geist, law professor, University of Ottawa, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. And hopefully, what's why not? If you're looking for some expert uh, insight on this, let's see if the committee calls Dr. Geist. I think the, the government's aware of his uh, criticism of, of their approach here, but... I think he's raised some very valid points. I wrote a piece over the weekend up at uh, globalnews.ca. And look, you know, as a broadcaster working for a Canadian broadcaster, I got a vested interest in all of this. Certainly uh, our company's position is that, you know, we're competing against Amazon and Netflix and Spotify, and there's not a level playing field. So that can mean fewer regulations, different regulations, more regulation. I mean, I don't know. You can have that conversation. I think the problem here is that once the government opened the door to talking about Internet users as broadcasters, 
you know, Canadians rightly said, what the hell is this all about? And I think, unfortunately, the government has kind of poisoned the whole well here over the conversation around the Broadcasting Act. It's very much a digital media world and a Broadcasting Act that very much is from an analog media world. So there's probably a conversation to be had there. The government's just made such a mess. I think people are just going to associate all of this with this, this boneheaded move of, well, how can we regulate user-generated content? I, it just it doesn't make sense. If you're uploading videos to TikTok, you're not a broadcaster. To me, like the pre-internet parallel would be if you're just some random guy. You know, and you say, here's, here's the, the phone number you can dial if you want to hear my latest rant on whatever. <laughs> That's not broadcasting. Maybe people are listening to that in, in lieu of listening to something else, but it's not something we would want the CRTC policing. To me, it's kind of akin to that. So sure, if we want to talk about, hey, Netflix doesn't have to, uh, you know, have all of these different requirements that Canadian broadcasters do, that doesn't seem right. Sure, okay, let's have that conversation. But to say, you know, some random person who uploads a video to YouTube, now the CRTC needs to regulate that, makes no sense. Well, it was good news, I guess, over the weekend. The um, Chinese rocket, the Long March 5B, a uh, massive, massive piece of uh, space junk, about 10 stories high, about 23 tons. And uh, we knew it was going to make an uncontrolled entry back into the Earth's atmosphere. We didn't know exactly when. And more to the point, we didn't know exactly where it was going to land. So obviously, you can do the math. Having something like that land, even the debris land on a populated area, could have been disastrous. As it turns out, it uh, landed in the Indian Ocean, it appears, not far from uh, the Maldives. So everybody's breathing a sigh of relief, but I don't know if this is the last situation like this we're going to have to encounter. There was quite a rebuke, by the way, from NASA, the administrator of NASA, Bill Nelson, accusing China of, quote, failing to meet responsible standards regarding their space debris. And yeah, if we've got essentially skyscraper-sized rockets plunging back to Earth in an uncontrolled manner, well, we've got a big problem, don't we? Well, someone who's been awfully busy over the weekend, uh, well, talking to the media and also tracking this big rocket, is uh, Jonathan McDowell. He's uh, an astronomer at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Jonathan, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So this did land in, in the Indian Ocean. I think there was some expectation that, that it probably would land there. We were kind of hoping it would land there. So how, how close did the actual landing come to what was, as best you could tell, the prediction? Um, it was actually within a few minutes of the predicted, the best uh, predicted time. But we still, we had a pretty big uncertainty. You just can't tell these things too far in advance. So, uh, you know, most of the world is ocean. There was a good chance it was going to be ocean. But, you know, if it had been just four minutes earlier, it would have crashed into right into Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Wow. Now, a lot of this obviously burns up on, on uh, re-entry. So it's not necessarily an intact rocket plunging onto potentially a populated area. But, you know, what's left of this rocket once it does reach the surface, whether it's land or water? Right. So the rocket sort of hits the atmosphere at enormous speed. It's about a 20-ton rocket. It melts, breaks up, and some of the denser parts 
survive re-entry and slow down to only a few hundred miles an hour, you probably get about a, t- a ton or even several tons of metal flying through the air at a couple hundred miles an hour and slamming into the ground. So it's not too great if you're standing right in the way of it. No kidding. So this is a booster rocket. Now, this is part of uh, China's, uh, I guess, part of their their efforts to to set up um, a space station. Uh, but normally these booster rockets, I understand, they, they come right back into the atmosphere. What, what was different with the Long March 5B? So the Long March 5B delivers its cargo all the way to orbit, which is sort of, you know, the, the nice Uber way of doing it, drop you off right at your door. But it does mean that you end up with the rocket stage uh, uh, struck in orbit, uh, dead, going to fall down somewhere you can't predict. Most other big rockets like this stop, drop off their passengers just a little before orbit and go, yeah, why don't you just go the last 5% of the way yourself? And that way they fall back into the ocean downrange from the launch site at a really predictable position. So China was was taking the position that everything was probably going to be fine. And now that this rocket has landed in the ocean, I, I guess they're, they're saying, I told you so. But how reckless is this approach in your view? Right. I, I think it is negligible. I mean, you know, that that word probably is doing a lot of work there. Yeah. Um, the uh, um, because the previous time they launched this rocket, all that couple of tons of metal landed in the Ivory Coast in West Africa and did damage a couple of houses and, and scared the heck out of a lot of people. Uh, so so I, I do think it's it's pretty unacceptable. And it, it is, you know, I think it's a genuine disagreement between China and the rest of the world about what an acceptable public safety risk is. Um, they They think, yeah, okay, fine. You, you do some damage, you pay some compensation, worst case, you have some casualties, yeah, we can live with that. Uh, whereas an organization like NASA uh, is, no, 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 we can't even have, you know, a one in a thousand chance of risking that. So how do we resolve this? I mean, because it sounds like we're going to be dealing with these issues uh, in the future, aren't we? Yep, you can accept, expect one of these uh, nail biters uh, a couple of times a year for the next few years as they assemble their space station and launch more of these long barge 5B rockets. Uh, and uh, unless we can encourage China to take a different approach, uh, there's, there's nothing really that you know we can force them to do. So I think in the longer term, though, Engaging China in cooperative space ventures will expose them more to our way of thinking about these issues, uh, hopefully convince them that it's not just us dunking on China just to be mean. Right. And, and uh, you know, in, in the long run, I think they are. I do see signs that they're being more careful in their space program than they were, say, 10 years ago. It just hasn't gone far enough yet. Well, and maybe this is more of a legal question, but I mean, obviously, China can do in its airspace. You know, what the, obviously they have they have jurisdiction there. But uh, once we're talking about putting a rocket up into orbit and then that rocket coming down, well, outside of Chinese airspace, where where does the authority and jurisdiction lie here? Right. Well, uh, it's more a question of liability. It turns out yeah. that. Uh, the uh, jurisdiction over space objects remains under the jurisdiction of the, the country that launched them. But if they cause damage, then the country that got damaged can ask for compensation. 
uh, and, uh, and and that effectively has happened a couple of times. Uh, most famously, back in 1978, when the Soviet Union, the Soviet Navy, dropped an entire nuclear reactor on uh, uh, Saskatchewan and uh, littered radioactive debris over Great Slave Lake, and uh, Canada did get a few million bucks from them for the cleanup effort. In terms of protecting uh, against some of those kinds of landings, I mean, there was all sorts of talk over the weekend. I mean, could we put some fighter jets up and shoot down this this rocket if it's heading in, in a bad direction? I mean, given the speed, the unpredictability, I mean, how realistic is to have that those kinds of defenses in place? Yeah, you're just likely to make it worse if you try and do something like that. Uh, again, blowing it up would, um, you know, unless you get exactly the right bit of it, might just leave the denser engine parts all the more uh, uh, ready to re-enter, maybe spread them out over a slightly uh, larger area, and push space debris up into higher orbits where they'll stay in space for longer and threaten things like the International Space Station. So I'm generally not in favor of just trying to blow things up as the solution to your problems. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think uh, you know, prevention would be much better. And, you know, the risk is low enough that I think once once these things are on the way down, you just got to cross your fingers and hope any kind of intervention is, is liable to only to make things worse. Well, and it, maybe it's not just rockets. I mean, there, there's a lot of space junk up there, and it's something you've done a lot of research on. I mean, uh, you know, how, how much of a problem is this in, in the years ahead with other pieces of space junk potentially making dangerous reentries? I think for the reentry aspect... It's not a generic problem, right? People have been very careful not to leave big stuff like this in low orbit over the past yeah. 30 years, ever since Skylab hit Australia, um, which was back in 1979. And, uh, you know, the, it's, it's, this is really an outlier where the Chinese are doing something different. Most of the space activity, and it's a hugely increasing amount of activity in space, but it's being done relatively carefully from the point of view of re-entering junk. Uh, there are, have been a few exceptions, but, but by and large, that's the case. Uh, there is, however, a huge problem with uh, traffic in space, satellites having to dodge other satellites. It's getting much too crowded out there, and, uh, and I think that's going to be something that the international community has to address in the next few years. Absolutely. We'll leave it there. Jonathan McDowell, appreciate the insight, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thank you. All the best. That is uh, Jonathan McDowell, an astronomer at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Uh, you can find him uh, on Twitter at Planet4589. Planet4589.org is his uh, personal website. So, yes, he's been a very busy man over the last few days, trying to stay on top of uh, tracking this rocket, as were others, and... Um, you know, fortunately, uh, spending some time sharing that expertise with media right around the world. So we appreciate uh, his thoughts, his comments on this. So it was one of those weird things. Like, I mean, there was a pretty low, low chance of this Chinese rocket, you know, slamming into Calgary. But it wasn't outside the realm of possibility, right? So there was sort of a map of what's kind of maybe the most likely area where, where this will will land. But, you know, so much hinges on just those tiniest of details, just in terms of when it makes the re-entry or the angle and all of that. And so it was really hard to predict. So it was a bit of a gamble, I guess you could call it, on the part of the Chinese government. And this time it worked out all right.
The question of, of herd immunity, as we start to roll out vaccines and, and look to countries, well, Israel's a great example of a country that really seems to have tamed COVID-19 through vaccination. Is herd immunity still possible? Now, what does herd immunity mean? I think the basic concept is that you have enough people that have immunity to something that it just it, it prevents that something from circulating, that even people that don't have the, some of that immunity are protected by the vast majority who do. But depending on, on the virus, depending on how contagious it is, that number can vary. So there's certainly some math involved. And with the rise of variants, that has changed the equation in terms of whether we can achieve some herd immunity. And ultimately, how important is it? So joining us to talk more about some of these important questions is someone who's been uh, following all of this very closely. Uh, Professor, Professor Ashley uh, Tewitt is a epidemiologist, mathematical modeler at the University of Toronto's Dalana School of Public Health. Professor Tewitt, I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, and thanks for joining us here today. Hi, good afternoon. So when we talk about herd immunity, just the, the basic concept of, from your perspective, explain what it means to you. Sure, and you, you gave a very good <laughs> description of what it is. It's exactly what you said, which is when you have a large fraction of a population that has immunity to a disease, and whether that immunity is derived because they've been infected and recovered, or it can be because you've been vaccinated, it makes it really hard for the disease to cause an epidemic in that population. So essentially, the people who have immunity are serving to protect the, the broader community, and, and, you know, typically when we talk about herd immunity, we're talking about vaccine preventable diseases, right. so like similar to like measles or mumps, rubella, the sorts of um, diseases that we don't really see anymore because we get vaccinated in childhood. And the reason that we don't see them anymore is because we have herd immunity. It was interesting here, and there, the, I think in the context of herd immunity that people might have heard of in the last year was this idea being floated by some that we would somehow achieve that through infection, the idea of, of sickness to prevent sickness, which always seemed very strange to me. As you say, typically that's not how we would talk about herd immunity, and it, it seems pretty clear as we look around the world, no one's been successful with that approach. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the challenge with that approach, and it's always been the reason that a lot of people objected to that when it was proposed, is that to reach herd immunity, you need to have a large number of infections. And, you know, initially there were proposals that, well, we can protect those who are most vulnerable and just let infections happen amongst younger people or people who are most like less likely to end up in hospital. But we've seen that around the world. We've seen it in Canada that when you have large numbers of infections happening, you know, even amongst people who are, you know, supposedly less vulnerable, we still end up with overwhelmed healthcare systems and we still end up with large numbers of deaths. Yeah. So it's really not an advisable approach. And unfortunately, we've, we've seen it play out this past year. We certainly have. So when we look at, at vaccine uh, prevent, you know, herd immunity through vaccines, rather. There's there's two important components to that, how good the vaccines are, how contagious the disease is. And it's kind of an evolving situation on both fronts. I, I think the news is still pretty good, but what, what's your assessment of where we're at? Yeah, so so you're you're right again, you know, there there are these two components. One is how good the vaccines are. And when we talk about vaccine effectiveness 
with respect to herd immunity, we're talking about how good a vaccine is for preventing a person from becoming infected at all. And the early estimates of vaccine efficacy that we had from trials, we're looking at how good the vaccines were at preventing people from having symptomatic infection or from having um, severe disease, so ending up in hospital or dying. But now that the vaccines have been used in the broader population, we're starting to get data on how good they are at preventing people from getting infected at all. And for the mRNA vaccines in particular, so Moderna and Pfizer, they look to be um, very good at preventing infection, you know, in the range of 80 to 90 percent of, of, of um, sorry, effectiveness against, against infection. Um, and then, you know, the other piece to this is how many people are vaccinated. So we need to have relatively high uptake to, to reach herd immunity. And it really depends on the transmissibility of the virus. And one thing that's thrown us for a bit of a loop over the past year is that we've had the emergence of more transmissible variants. And so these more transmissible variants mean that that threshold for achieving herd immunity has also increased. So initially we were talking about the fact that we probably need 60 or 70% of the population to have immunity to reach that threshold. And now we're saying it's likely upwards of 80% um, given the B117 variant that's taken hold in, in a lot of the world. Yeah, and, and that's, that's, I don't know if that's impossible, but it, it certainly represents a bigger challenge. And there certainly is vaccine hesitancy out there. Obviously, we haven't yet approved it for younger children anyway. So given all of that, how tall an order is this, do you think? Yeah, if you, if you do the math, it gets really tough. Um, you know, you're you're removing about 15% of the population that's under age 12 who currently can't get vaccinated because we just don't have vaccines approved for that age group. And then, you know, if you look at surveys in terms of people's willingness to get vaccinated, there's generally between 15 to 20% of the population that just say, you know, no matter what, they don't want to get vaccinated. So, you know, in an ideal world where we have a vaccine that's perfect at preventing transmission, you know, just given those those limits in terms of the population that would get vaccinated, you need about approximately everybody who's eligible to get vaccinated to reach that threshold. So it's, it's going to be, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's it's going to be very, very tough. And does that matter? I mean, you know, the goal of herd immunity, it seems to be a goal of really just kind of eradicating COVID, stamping it out, it, it goes away. And um, even if we don't achieve that, you know, there, there's still, I think, a, a remarkable benefit from, from having widespread vaccination, reducing it to, to something much more manageable. So, you know, I mean, is, does success hinge on reaching herd immunity or can success look a little different? Yeah, absolutely. We don't we don't need to reach herd immunity, and I think that's been a bit of a you know a conversation that we've been having. And you know now we're talking about well, we might not reach that. That shouldn't be a reason to to feel despair or to feel like the pandemic is never going to end. It's going to end. You know we don't need to reach herd immunity before we start seeing the impacts of vaccines. You will start seeing declines in transmission well before that. If you look at Israel, if you look at England. You know, they're, they haven't reached 80% of their population vaccinated, but they're already seeing the profound effects of vaccines in terms of, you know, their, their epidemic curves have just, you know, gone down quite dramatically. 
And, you know, the other piece to this is that for people who are vaccinated, they have the direct benefits associated with getting vaccinated, which is that, you know, even if you still have circulating virus, if you're vaccinated and you get exposed, you're far less likely to become seriously ill or to die from that infection. So, you know, what we're seeing again in places that are ahead of us in terms of their vaccinations is that you're starting to see a bit of an uncoupling where, you know, you can have infection circulating, but you're no longer seeing, you know, high rates of hospitalizations or or death from COVID-19. So it really, you know, I think herd immunity has been held up as this goal and it's a great thing for us to strive for. But it's really important to remember that, you know, every vaccine counts and, you know, every vaccination that a person gets brings us closer to that threshold. But even without it, we're going to experience the benefits of vaccination. Yeah, that's a great point. We'll leave it there. Appreciate the insight uh, on all of this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Oh, thanks so much for talking to me. All right. All the best. That is uh, Professor Ashley Atuit, uh, epidemiologist, mathematical modeler at the University of Toronto's Dalla School of Public Health. So some overview of what we mean when we talk about herd immunity and how achievable it is at this point. So, yes, I mean, the, the downside is that some of these more transmissible variants and even to some extent those that have a little bit more of that immune escape do pose more of a problem in getting to herd immunity. Uh, the good news is we have vaccines that are effective against all of the known variants of concern at this point. And even if it's a little more challenging to, to get to actual herd immunity, you know, maybe we don't need to. I mean, Israel's probably the country that's closest to it. Even if they haven't officially reached herd immunity, it's kind of a moot point to them because they've got it under control. It's really a non-issue. You know, they had a total of eight COVID cases yesterday, eight, but the entire country. They're about twice the size of Alberta. So, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're a long ways from that at this point. I think about 0.2% positivity rates, so almost nothing. And they're at about not even 60% fully vaccinated. I mean, even the U.S., which isn't as far along as, as Israel, and it's kind of that example of having something much more manageable. If you're able to ease restrictions and, and have a sense of normalcy come back and your numbers aren't going up, then does it matter if it's herd immunity? If you've reduced it to some background noise and the numbers aren't going up, you're not seeing huge outbreaks, you're not seeing uh, big increases in hospitalizations, then that's pretty good, isn't it? So maybe we've made too much about herd immunity. It would be ideal, I suppose, in a perfect world to just be done with this and never have to talk about it or think about it again. It just goes away. Maybe that's not realistic at this point, but um, that's not quite the setback. Maybe it seems. All right. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this uh, Vaccine Monday. As Alberta opens up appointments for everybody age 12 and up. So this is a big step. You know what? We're not quite at the point like they are in most U.S. states where there was appointments available right now for everybody. Most U.S. states, if you haven't had a vaccine yet, you can walk in and get one, probably even today. And there's the opportunity now for a lot of folks to get their second dose and be fully vaccinated 
We're not yet at that point. We're getting there, folks. We are. This vaccine rollout has indeed been frustrating, you know, especially the early part of this year. But the pace is really picking up. You know, through this month of May, we'll be getting two million doses a week uh, just from Pfizer. In addition to Moderna shipments, some uncertainty, mind you, over uh, AstraZeneca and uh, Johnson and Johnson. But we're going to be in a pretty good position come the end of this month, certainly by the end of June. So now that appointments have opened up, now comes the tricky part, getting one of those appointments. Now, fortunately, if you go way back to the first stage of our vaccine rollouts, we we certainly had some bumps in the system. I think we've learned from that. I think the system is at least able to handle this amount of demand. And we saw on Friday when it opened up uh, for, I guess it was uh, age 30 and up, things seemed to go fairly well. And now today that we've added the 12 to 29 crowd, again, things seem to be going relatively smoothly, at least in terms of the system not crashing. But it can be tricky to navigate all of this, right? There's the AHS website. You can book appointments. There's Alberta Blue Cross. You can try to fight a pharmacy. You can contact pharmacies directly. So, yeah, there's a lot of different paths to an appointment. So there's a pretty handy service out there called Vaccine Hunters Alberta. It's there to, you know, inform people about all of this, what folks need to know about booking an appointment, and steering them in the right direction. If appointments are opening up, there's some, you know, vacancies at a certain pharmacy when it comes to appointments. It's a great source for that timely information. You can find them on Facebook at Vax, V-A-X, Vax Hunters A-B, on Twitter, A-B underscore V-A-X. But joining us uh, to talk more about all this, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, one of the volunteers working with Vaccine Hunters Alberta, Jenea Matheson joins us up on the line here. Janam, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. So tell us a bit more about how this all came about, and I guess what got you interested in this. Yeah, so for myself and uh, Sarah, we both kind of got started with the 75-plus crowd. We helped book our own grandparents and people in our lives, and from there we uh, started helping strangers on Twitter book. And from there, it's kind of growing. Um, We decided to create the Twitter account and share the information that we already had to help connect Albertans to appointments. What what do you find is the most common either question that people have or or problem that people run into? I think people are just unsure of the system and they're just looking for information. Most of what we do is just answering basic questions of how to book, where to book, um, what vaccine it's going to be, where they can get the soonest appointment in their area. It's nothing overly complex, just general information. Yeah, I know there's a lot of that information out there, and it's not necessarily a knock on, on the system, right? And when it comes to something on this scale, there's probably going to be, there's some inevitable complexity that comes along with it. Yeah, um, but what, what makes it challenging in your view? Um, I think it's just, the constant eligibility changes were really confusing for people. People didn't know if they were eligible, and it was a lot of text to read through on the AHS site. And with things changing day to day, even even for us, it was hard to stay on top of. So I think just clear communication and comprehensive communication was a bit of a challenge as this all rolled out. Yeah, and we did have some some technical hiccups when we went back. I think it was when we um, opened up appointments for the seventy five plus, and yeah. the system crashed. Right, it was offline for a while. Does it seem like we've we've ironed out at least those technical issues? 
Yeah, for sure. Like to give AHS credit, they've been really responsible yeah. or responsive to the technical feedback that people have given. The booking process is much smoother now, and every time eligibility expands, it seems to get a bit smoother. Of course, there's still some bumps in the road, and there's always a few small issues, but it's uh, overall quite smooth. Okay, so as it stands now, so we have AHS clinics that offer the vaccines, and we have pharmacies that are participating, and they're offering the vaccines. Am I forgetting anybody? Uh, There are some doctor's offices, I guess, that are piloting it as well now. Okay, so the AHS website, is that exclusively then for the AHS clinics? That's right, yeah. The AHS books, their AHS clinics, and then the pharmacies book themselves independently. There is no central booking at this time. Right. So the Alberta Blue Cross website, it provides a list of the pharmacies that are participating, but it's not a central booking site, is it? That's not. And lots of the smaller pharmacies struggle as they don't have websites or the staff to handle the volume of calls that they receive. Yeah, which, you know, given the the situation, you almost need a a few people working full time answering the phones. So what what are you finding then? Yeah, no kidding. So in terms of how pharmacies are handling all of this, I mean, some you can phone, some do have websites, uh, some mm-hmm. I was reading today, some just you can walk in, not get a vaccine, but walk in and, and book an appointment that way. Right. Yeah, I know like a lot of the smaller pharmacies are struggling, especially some of them aren't listed on the Blue Cross site or are being added and they have vaccines to use up. So we hear a lot from a lot of those in our email asking us to post and help them fill those appointments, which is which is good for them. Yeah. Well, and it's certainly helpful. So are are you guys just constantly sort of monitoring all of this? Because, you know, I do see on, on the Twitter feed, for example, and you'll say, hey, you know, there's some appointments open at this pharmacy in Calgary. or Hey, there's some appointments open at this pharmacy in Edmonton or Red Deer or wherever it happens to be. So how how are you finding these? I mean, it's nothing that the public can't access. We're mostly just logging into the sites ourselves and seeing what's available. And now we're kind of at the point where people are giving us tips they've seen something on a website or they've been at a pharmacy and know there's appointments and pass that along to us, which is really nice. Saves us a lot of time. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, you see the reaction from people who have had some problems and then all of a sudden they, wow, I got an appointment in a few days. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, for the most part, I think everyone seems really excited about this. And, you know, there's that uncertainty of, am I going to get an appointment? When is it? What kind of reaction are you getting from, from folks? I think people are really surprised at how many appointments are available and they're really thankful that um, we've been here to help navigate the system and make it as smooth as possible. And uh, people are starting to understand that there isn't a scarcity issue anymore. There are lots of shots available and it isn't um, too long of a wait to get yours now. I mean, at some point, hopefully, you know, this this will all be redundant. We're, we're not going to need <laughs> you guys anymore. Um, yeah, that's the hope. I mean, we, we got a ways to go here, obviously. And I imagine now at this point, we're already booking appointments into June, probably. We got to figure out when people are going to start getting their second doses. So what, what do you see as the path forward here? Yeah, like we're looking forward to the announcement on second doses opening up here soon after this 12 plus crowd has a chance to book. And then hopefully people have navigated the system once and understand how to work a little bit better and it will go a little bit smoother for everyone. And then, I mean, I guess looking to the words, the future, if booster shots are a yearly thing or not, um, and helping people navigate that as well. Okay, well, folks, go to the Twitter feed. Again, it's easy to find uh, AB underscore Vax, V-A-X. There's a pinned tweet that's kind of, um, I guess, a frequently asked question, right? Sort of an overview of what everybody needs to know. Yeah, it's a nice little guide to to walk you through the process. And then if you follow along and 
you'll you'll see these these tweets and you know they they come throughout the day where there's appointments available at various locations so it's a great way to to stay on top of it so you keep you guys keep that going throughout the day don't you yeah we sure do yeah Sometimes All right, well, it's a night. valuable service <laughs> and into the night, absolutely. Uh, so, again, if folks want to learn more, it's uh, Vax Hunter AB, AB underscore Vax uh, on Twitter. Janea, thanks for doing this, and thanks for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate yes. it. Thank you so much. All right. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Janae Matheson involved in uh, Vax Hunter AB, Vaccine Hunters Alberta. So maybe you've already uh, gone through this. You've already had an appointment. You're done. You, you don't have to worry about this. But I think now that we're opening up, uh, you know, 12 to 29 on top of everybody who was eligible as of Friday, there was a lot of demand for this. And so, yeah, we do have these different avenues of booking appointment. You can go through the AHS website, which again, and, and kudos to them, that they've got it figured out. So when you've got tens of thousands of people trying to get on and book an appointment, we can handle it. And I've seen anecdotally from people who say, wow, I logged on and there were 50,000 people ahead of me and it took about an hour, an hour and a half, and I got my appointment. That's great to hear. It really is. And then we've got the pharmacies that are involved. And, and look, it makes all kinds of sense to have pharmacists doing this. You know, Alberta was kind of the first to reach out to uh, pharmacies, bring them in on, on administering flu shots. Most other jurisdictions do that now. So this was was logical. Let's get the pharmacies doing the COVID shots. And for the most part, that seems to work pretty well. But there's no central booking system. I guess that's the only challenge. So it's not incorporated into the AHS website. And there's no central booking site for all of these pharmacies, because obviously they're, they're separate companies with their own websites or networks or whatever. So that's where it can be a little tricky to navigate. And we've seen already throughout this, you know, where, you know, things just open up all of a sudden. Wow, this pharmacy just got a whole bunch of doses. If you're looking for a vaccine, you know, they'll have a whole bunch today and tomorrow. But it's hard to know when and where that's going to happen. So you can follow the, the vaccine hunters and uh, you'll you'll see these uh, tweets through the day. So 23 minutes ago, the uh, for example, the Calgary Safeway at Ogden has appointments for this week. Uh, if you're in YQL, is that uh, Medicine Hat or Lethbridge? Lethbridge, I think, right? If you're in the Lethbridge area and you're looking for your first dose of vaccine, the medicine shop by the hospital has a bunch of appointments for tomorrow. So they had that just about 20 minutes ago. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.